Welcome to a new episode of the One in America podcast. This is your host, Sophia Nelson, and I have a very special guest with me today, Dr. Kalita Nichols-Fairfax, who is a professor at Norfolk State University in Norfolk, Virginia, one of our great HBCUs. She's also the author of a new book titled The African Experience in Colonial Virginia, Essays on the 1619 Arrival and the Legacy of Slavery. I have the honor of writing the epilogue for this new book, uh, for a very consequential book in a very consequential time. Uh, Dr. Fairfax, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for contributing to the compilation of essays in the new book. I'm so grateful. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, I am uh, very excited to talk to you because uh, this book, as you know, was supposed to come out during the commemoration in 2019, and I really believe by the grace of God and by providence and events, it's coming out now, which it was just released. And by the way, folks, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it, you can download it uh, on your uh, Kindle or other device to read it on your iPad, etc. But I want to encourage you to pick up this book, particularly for the academics listening, those of you that teach uh, political science, history, African-American studies around the country. I have a large listenership. Um, It's a good demographic of white, black, other races and cultures all over the globe. And don't let the price tag scare you. It's an academic imprint, which means it's always going to be a little bit more than than a book in the mainstream. But I really want you to consider not just buying this book, but teaching it in your classes, discussing it in, in your high school classes, uh, in your grade school classes even, and breaking it down because it matters. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Uh, but first, uh, Dr. Fairfax, right out the gates, I want to get into uh, your quick observations of of the inauguration of uh, our first female uh, vice president, first woman of color. She happens to also be your and my Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority sister. Give me your observations about the importance of Kamala Harris being vice president at this consequential moment. This is a providential moment as a graduate of Howard University and as someone who also was initiated as the founder chapter of the sorority, I, I cannot be uh, so, words are almost indescribable to share <laughs> with you how, how prideful I am. And I've just carried this, the, the moment of inauguration with me ever since uh, January 20th. And uh, I believe that uh, we are still in this 400th moment. And yes. so her, her inauguration as Vice President means that we are seeing a sea change of so many things in society. And uh, I believe they're gonna continue to change. And I believe that that she will uh, give 110% because that's what we do when you you are a graduate of Howard University, you are inculcated in that wonderful educational uh, bastion of, of black education at Howard University, the Mecca we call it. And um, she is connected very much to an intellectual genealogy that I think people don't really consider in that when you are a student at Howard, uh, regardless of what your major is, uh, you are trained to uh, seek truth, 
and to serve. And that's exactly what she's done in, in her career and in her entire life. And she has kept her connection to our community through the sorority and through also her involvement with the links. And so uh, she is clear, I believe, about her greater purpose in her life. And I look, I look forward to what will unfold. How awesome was it to see the Howard University marching band escort our new first female, first African-American, first South Asian-American woman uh, on the streets of Washington, D.C. to her new office. How awesome was that? Oh, it's showtime. That was (laughs) showtime. (laughs) Reminiscent of every football game and every homecoming. And the fact that she has, she brought Howard with her on that day speaks volumes about how she understands herself uh, as, as a Black person. I, I, I think it, it was brilliant that, that that occurred. It's just such a humbling feeling. Yeah. I was on the the, the uh, initiation line after her line, and and it's just so it's just uh, such a feeling of of pride, and you're just so happy, but you also feel so connected to something much more bigger than yourself. Yeah, uh, right. And so, I, so I, you I, actually, because Kamala was a senior, right, when she went over. She was, and she graduated that year in 86, yes. So did you know her? She may not remember meeting me because there's just so many people at, at Howard. Um, so I met her um, uh, more than once, but I, I don't believe she would really remember. Right, <laughs> I really right, don't. Right. No, I, just, I, think yeah. awesome you, I think it's awesome that you remember yeah. her, obviously, and that you met her, and there would be no doubt in my mind that your paths would have crossed, uh, you know, given Alpha Kappa Alpha and that connection. But I want to get into, um, I think, what's really at issue here, why I think you are so important as a guest right now. You know, I get all kind of people on this podcast, politicians, members of Congress, uh, arts, culture, uh, you know, icons, pastors, all kind of folks that I get to talk to, but I think that talking to you right now in this moment, post, post the Capitol siege, uh, post a second historic impeachment of a president and looking at what I think Soror was a myth. Um, when Barack Obama became president, there was a lot of discussion about a post racial America. And what we see with Donald Trump's presidency starting in 2017 was something very different. It was like the rise of, it was almost like, and I want to choose my words carefully here, but it was almost like our white brothers and sisters, white citizens in America felt that there needed to be a pushback that, and I'm not saying all, but many clearly, uh, really were excited about this MAGA movement, uh, about this return to something, about taking back something, about uh, undoing the legacy of uh, Barack Obama. Can you can you kind of help us work through this? It seems like uh, Van Jones once coined the phrase "white lash," that you know was very <laughs> controversial. But I'm kind of curious as to how you see how does how does America go from Barack Obama to Donald Trump? Explain that. Well, from my perspective, as as as, as someone uh, in in African American studies, uh, I don't see it more so connected to personality as I do connected to to people's vision and their understanding of what America is. 
And public education has a great deal to do with that. Okay. Public education, right, since since public education existed as, as a social institution, have promulgated certain narratives of whiteness. Uh, they, they've sponsored certain uh, narratives and curriculums, right, uh, that our children are socialized in, that you and I were socialized mm-hmm. in, with regards to how America looks, uh, how America should look what America was intended for, who America was intended for. Let's put a pin in that, as Oprah would say. Let's put a pin in that. Let's stop yeah. there for a moment, because that's a that's one of those aha moments. You said something, and I want to make sure all my listeners around the globe hear this. She's talking about public education and the importance of what we are taught as children in our curriculum. If you grew up post-World War II in what was once Nazi Germany or in Europe, you learned very clearly and and i give all of those who made sure that we would never forget the horrors of the holocaust which is something i want to segue into with your book dr fairfax is the the curriculum what was taught so that it would never happen again that someone like hitler could never rise again so that such a wicked evil ethnic cleansing of a people could never take place again and not only did they educate in the schools around Europe but they also created museums they created memory points we have a holocaust museum right here in the United States which predated the African American history museum by decades and it did not happen here but we made sure that we had it here so that this could not happen and I want to use that as a segue point into what you're saying about curriculum and education as you know, uh, the, the subtext of your book is essays on the 1619 arrival and the legacy of slavery. Conjoin that with the 1619 Project, Dr. Fairfax, and why you think there was such a pushback and a vehement reaction by Trump and others, which created this, right, the 1776 commission that somehow teaching about 1619, he called it, quote, abuse of children he did. to have them yeah. learn about the real history of this country. I need you to break that down because you opened the door and I'm going to give you the space to do it here. But why is there such anger and a visceral reaction to the 1619 Project and books like yours to teach the total history? What's going on there? So what we find is that for decades and decades, uh, American history taught in public schools, and, and my husband and I have two teenagers in a, a, a public school system here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. The public uh, school education I received as a, a student uh, in Richmond, and so many people uh, across the country have only really focused on a narrative that only highlighted uh, whiteness, uh, white historical figures, white frontierism, Confederates, white Confederates. Let's oh, absolutely. Oh, I, I, absolutely. And it has denied uh, African people, black people. Uh, it's, it's denied anything historical about what we have contributed. In fact, uh, the term slave is used uh, problematically because that is how black people are only referred to as slaves. We're not referred to as pioneers, frontiers, folk, originators, contributors, innovators, not even as as founders, not even as people who economically 
uh, produced and and <laughs> helped to make America the superpower that it is today. You know, and so, you know, yeah. let, let me throw that in. Hold that thought. Don't lose it. Um, I, of course, as you know, in my role as a journalist and, and being a correspondent when I was with NBC, I had the opportunity uh, a couple years ago to spend time at James Madison's Montpelier with uh, their uh, foundation head, Kat Imhoff. And uh, we spent, uh, there's video, you know, we did, I did a, a series on it. One of the things I learned, and I tweeted about this, and it really started a row, but it's important. I learned, uh, to your point there, of course, being an African-American studies minor in college, et cetera, I really didn't start learning about our history as Black people in this country until I got to college, to your point. And right. I had the opportunity to sit with Kat and talk and uh, the exhibit at Montpelier, uh, The Mere Distinction of Color, uh, is, you know, one of the efforts like at Monticello to do the Sally Hemings and to do the uh, Slave Row and, and to have these narratives to bring to life, to your point, the other perspective, the other reality. And one of the things that I learned, to your point, Dr. Fairfax, at Montpelier about the mere distinction of color was the absolute and abject wealth that the United States of America as a new as a new nation uh, after the declaration in 1776 the wealth that was made off of tobacco sugar cotton all you know done with free slave labor was in the billions America was very yeah. rich and Virginia was the richest of the colonies along with South Carolina. Yeah. And yes. I learned that not only was that a fact, they really do a good job at Madison's uh, ancestral home on doing the economics, the, the wealth that was created. And then once uh, tobacco and, and some of the staples uh, became not as lucrative, you know, when we're talking about pre-Civil War time, then they engaged in human trafficking of selling of black bodies, which which was very lucrative, right? If you own slaves, Thomas Jefferson, our beloved Declaration of Independence author, uh, you know, a great Virginian, beloved here in Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, at the end of his life when he was running out of money, sold off 100 plus slaves to pay off his debt. And I want to really make that point and give you a chance to respond to the wealth that was created by black labor, black lives, black bodies that got none of that wealth, not even compensation for the work done. And talk about it in the context of, uh, again, starting at 1619 as a starting point. And one of the things that I learned that turned my stomach was about Dolly Madison, a beloved first lady in American history who, you know, is, is tasked with and, and, and revered for saving the Capitol during the War of 1812, um, you know, and, and saving the photographs and doing all that as she was fleeing the White House. Do you know that she actually had a son from her first marriage who was a spendthrift, he gambled, etc. She actually sold a slave, sold a slave so that he could have some fresh shirts and some hand-sewn shirts from France. That's the value that we had to our founding fathers and our 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 bodies could be sold so that they could have some clothing, some expensive clothing. I want you to talk about that a little bit. The 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 economic impact of slavery on, on America's beginning 
and and just how little our lives were valued and how that feeds into this narrative today. You know, one of the reasons why I, I wanted to uh, create the book, which is a compilation of really helpful uh, essays for the reader, is to explain that, you know, the scene opening up in 1619, and I would even mention the scene that opened up in, in St. Augustine, Florida uh, in 1565 and, 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 and in other settlements, was not this, this development of a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial nation. I write that in the book. It really presents a blueprint to show the, the real true purpose of how African people were used in the Virginia colony. So despite our gifts and intellect and genius, we were only used as laborers. We were only regarded as cargo, as property without any human and legal rights. I think this is fundamentally important to make because that that would extend for uh, 200 years. It would extend even far beyond the Civil War. And so this is the development of what would become America. And uh, the 1619 Project that was so brilliantly put together by Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones uh, showcased that. And it, it even explains how enslavement is connected very much to realities, experiences, the sensibilities of Black people in today. Uh, what I wanted to show in the book is that uh, our citizenship status absolutely is undermined and it underscores our ability to procure resources, have meaningful crisis interventions, be able to choose how we are educated to uh, then transform our economic business ingenuity. And I also wanted to include uh, how we can think differently about history with regards to healing as, 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 as a people, with regards to how do we then circle back and, and understand ourselves and how do, do we then uh, uh, surpass trauma. The 1776 project doesn't do that. At what all. it does At is it, 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 it doesn't. It only highlights in their perspective the genius of, <laughs> of the Constitution. And, and the genius of certain uh, philosophers. So it ignores, in fact, Aboriginal people are not even mentioned. You know, the Native Americans, if you will, are not even mentioned. Black people are only mentioned with regards to the pictures that they've included of Dr. King or Frederick Douglass, which is insulting, yeah. uh, uh, you know, a, a quote here, a quote there. It, it, it is a pejoratively written uh, document. So the point of my book is to really have people think very differently about the founding of America, about the impact of enslavement and, and the impact of enslavement with regards to the lives of generations and generations of, of Black people. You mentioned public education. We should not forget that so many authors who wrote those early foundational uh, hi history textbooks of the 20th century were very much connected to the uh, lost cause mythology. They very much uh, highlighted uh, the Confederate uh, generals, con con Confederate sympathizers. They downplayed enslavement as something that was really helpful and, and great for, for for black people, uh, and it and it diffused and diluted the horrors and realities of not only enslavement but of uh, the Reconstruction period of of Jim Crow segregation. And, and I think we should also connect the, the moment of insurrection to the Dixiecrat party. You know, we haven't gone right. 
further to connect these different points, right? But it's connected. Right. So, so let's connect it very much. Another yeah. aha moment. And in the, the the 15 minutes that we have left, because I like to keep these podcasts tight because they engage right. our listeners. Um, I want I want to turn to that. You said a lot there, and I want to try to unpack it because again, I think it is critical that we have this conversation right now. One of the things that really has me upset, and I wrote a piece that was front page of USA Today on inauguration day, talking about uh, I don't want President Biden to make President Lincoln's mistake. Let me unpack that and have you comment. I, I hope you read the piece. I think yeah. that you did. Uh, But I think this is an important, you tie up something very well, which is if you go back to pre-Civil War and then Civil War uh, and then post-Civil War Reconstruction, which we know was cut short by racists, by pro-Confederates, Andrew Johnson, the vice president who became president after Lincoln was assassinated. And these people were given pardon. They were given cover. They were given excuse. And they were given an ability to take history in a different direction. Had Lincoln lived and had Lincoln held the Confederates like Lee and others to account and had them tried for treason and hung as they should have been as traitors to their nation, we would not have had this love affair that lasted for a hundred years. All of Jim Crow, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson and and, and, and then being overturned by Brown into the mid-1950s. We had a love affair with men who took up arms against the Union, who wanted to keep slavery, who were night Riders yeah. and KKK uh, founders and, and terrorized black people. And if we in this moment, Dr. Fairfax, and I feel strongly about this, so hear me, folks. If Biden in this moment, if the Senate, which is now 50-50 in this moment, does not convict Donald Trump of treason of insurrection and sedition and if those in the congress the 147 the 12 republican senators and the 126 republican members of congress including leadership who went along with the big lie who lied who lied who lied to the american people i cannot say this strongly they lied to you the election was not rigged the election was not stolen the election was not irregular in fact Chris Krebs, who was the director of cybersecurity at Homeland Security and and made sure that the elections were protected, said it was probably one of the most fair, free, and safe elections we ever had, Dr. Fairfax. To your point, Mm -hmm. they made up this lie, which is very similar. Go back to post-Civil War, the rewriting of history, and white mobs and white anger and white entitlement that led to, again, the 100 years of Jim Crow what do you see? What do you see if we let them off the hook again in this moment in 2021 and we don't hold these people to account? What happens to American democracy? And more importantly, what happens to American unity and race relations? If if indeed all that you share does not come to pass, we see then people buying in, believing, and are wedded to whiteness. Uh, that's, that is very much what happened with Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln may have written the Emancipation Proclamation, but Abraham Lincoln did not necessarily agree that black people were equal uh, to, to, to whites. And, and we see that in every social institution uh, in America today, unfortunately, throughout history. If indeed they do not hold people accountable, 
then we are continuing at the congressional level uh, the affirmation of whiteness, the affirmation of America as a a white uh, a country. And I think it's critically important uh, that we make the distinction. You said earlier in this podcast uh, that when uh, Hitler, right, was, was, Hitler has not been celebrated. Hitler has not been celebrated in Germany. Not at all. That is not the case here in America. And they were held. And you know that. The Nuremberg trials, as you know, these monsters, Mengele and Goebbels and all of the monsters. Because by the way, the head monster in America, i.e. Trump, cannot do what he needs to do unless he is enabled by other monsters of like mind and like power and like willingness to go along. So to your point, Hitler has been condemned by everybody around the world. At that time, post and and present, nobody names their child Adolf Hitler. Nobody has museums and signs up with Hitler, except for those who follow his wicked, demonic ideology. So yes, you're right. But go ahead and continue your thought about what happens, though, if, if in America we don't hold these white domestic terrorists, let's call them what they are. They're not protesters, folks. They were not peaceful. And I also don't give cover to the others who were there who said, well, I didn't go in the Capitol and I didn't ransack the Capitol. But you still share the ideology. Talk about that. If they're not held to account, what what are we saying then about who we are? Absolutely. We are we are we are going to say America is going to say that we uh, like the fact that we are a white nation uh, that's racially divided, whose wealth is racially divided, resources, opportunities, privilege and treatment are all racially divided. And we're we're absolutely comfortable with that. If we don't see the political class hold people accountable in every other social institution with regards to education, how our children are trained with regards to uh, the economic system, how people have access to resources, how people have access to privilege and ownership, with regards to public welfare, how people then are able to get help that they need. We, we, we will not see a change in those other social institutions that impact quality of life for people in this country. And I think we will continue to see forms of unrest uh, and, and we should expect it. I, th- I also believe it's important that we think differently. If we begin to think differently uh, about history and about people, and this is a, a large reason why I wrote the book, it's just not about the landing of African people in 1619. It's about what would happen right, Dr. Fairfax, after the landing. Dr. Fairfax, hold right. that thought. We lost your last sentence there a little bit. Go back and start over what you were saying. You wrote the book because you were you were talking and we lost you a little bit. Absolutely. Because of the unrest, uh, because of everything that has happened to Black people in particular, I felt the need to have a book that will challenge people to think differently about history, to think differently about citizenship, right? To think differently about 1619. It wasn't just that African people only landed there or or in any other years. It's about what would happen afterwards that would then make America what it is today. It's a rethinking about our sensibility as black people, as white people, as this, as, as other people, and about what America is supposed to be about. How do we really turn the page with regards to democracy? Will democracy really look differently to black people, right? If people are held accountable uh, because of the insurrection or yeah, will think- it not? What will it mean? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a good point. And I want to, like I said, as we wrap this, I want to I wanna say a couple things that you said because I want to make sure they're not missed. First and foremost, um, 
this notion of accountability, I think, is critical. We, we see a lot of people calling for unity, but no accountability. Isn't that, Dr. Fairfax, been one of the major problems in this country around race and racism and why it never goes away? Absolutely. When you consider uh, all those people who are of the Ku Klux Klan and other white vigilante groups, and then, of course, people who were judges and ministers and mayors and police officers who killed Black people for trying to uh, register other people to vote, never held accountable. This is reminiscent of, of the experience that Black people have had with law enforcement as an institution. I believe you make a great case that if we don't see people held accountable, that it sends a signal, particularly to the African-American community, and we're going to see unrest even more and, and even greater. Yeah, I think I that's that. right. And I think that uh, I want to say this about the uh, where we find ourselves. I mean, you know, I wrote a book, E Pluribus One, Reclaiming Our Founders, Vision for yes. United America. And what I was talking about, United, was that the colonies, the reason that the 13 colonies had to band together as one nation is because if they had not, they would not have ever been able to defeat the British Empire and form the United States. However, people need to be very clear. And you and I get this as people that you grew up in the South. I was a military brat and all over, but I've lived in Virginia more than half of my life now. And uh, I, the South had a very different ethos. The fact of the matter right. is, had Jefferson been able to get that first draft of the declaration that he and Ben Franklin and John Adams worked on together, slavery would have been abolished. We know that South Carolina, it's always South Carolina, don't get me started. We know that South <laughs> Carolina and other Southern states, Georgia, et cetera, would not agree to that because had they lost slave labor, they would not have been able to survive and thrive the way they were economically. And that is important that people do not miss this. I want to say this, and I'm going to give you the last word, which is this, folks. Listen to me very carefully. We've been lied to. Part of the reason that you saw those folks that are your neighbors, that are your colleagues at work, the people that you've had Starbucks with or seen at the grocery store or go to church with, went up there the way they did on January the 6th is because they were lied to. And they were lied to again and again and again about an election that was not stolen, that was fair, that was not rigged, that was certified. But a lie can do a lot of damage. And Dr. Fairfax, over the past four years, I have never seen more abject lying, gaslighting, acceptance of misinformation of crazy information of conspiracy theories i mean it was really put forward dr fairfax that the election had been rigged by hugo chavez who came back from the grave dead seven years and rigged <laughs> the machines and the socialism was coming to get these folks and I want you to, as we close, wrap this for us. Again, I want to go back to this e pluribus unum out of many one. I want to know, A, can we get there given where we are? And B, given what you've written in this amazing book, this anthology, this, this essays of, of great people writing. Again, I'm humbled to have done the epilogue. Um, my question is, again, in first part, can we ever get to e pluribus unum? And B... 
how do we fight back from this misinformation campaign that has really become a real problem uh, for our democracy to thrive? Uh, we have members of Congress, senators, governors, 146 members of Congress wanted to overturn a free and fair certified election because they said that there was, uh, it was stolen, that it was rigged, that there were, there were, and mostly black and brown folks, by the way, were the ones they wanted overturned, okay? Uh, how do we possibly heal and get to an e pluribus unum, Dr. Fairfax, when we can't even agree on facts? <laughs> this is not a feel good moment. Uh, and and although the last four no no it's not and the last four years under uh, 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 the, the the last president yes revealed uh, such lies but I'm going to say to you I, I I'm not willing to, to let everybody else off the hook for decades and decades and decades there have been these narratives promulgated in popular culture in Hollywood uh, in public education uh, yes in government that America is ostensibly a white country and so yes what we find during the last four years is the fanning of that narrative because you're getting you you were doing fabulous and then your connection just got kind of crazy so let's go back to i asked you the questions of you know how we're going to get to a pluribus unum and what happens if we can't agree on facts and can you just try to get yourself still i don't know what's happening but just start over and and tell us you know whatever it is you want us to hear as we we lead out This is not a feel-good moment, uh, but I'm not willing to let other people off of the hook. Yes, the last four years of the administration fanned the flames of, of, of everything you've just mentioned, but for decades and decades and decades, people have been educated. We've seen in Hollywood, we've seen in industry, we've seen actually in technology as a new industry, uh, uh, institutions and behaviors that favor white people, that favor white culture, that minimizes, diminishes, and denies the contribution, citizenship rights, opportunities for black people and other uh, racial groups. I believe that we not only need to see the justice that you mentioned uh, happen in Congress, we also though need to see tangible change in institutions. And I also think we need to be clear that the trauma that black people have experienced uh, racially in this country needs to uh, be reckoned with, with regards to uh, the disruption of culture and memory and uh, psychology, scientific and technological advancement that for generations and generations have not occurred or have minimally occurred because of trauma and because of racism. I know that's another conversation we should have, but, yes. but, but, Dr. Fairfax, yeah. let me say this. Yeah. And I, I, like Absolutely. I said, I like to keep these tight. And this has been good. I'm going to end up breaking this into listeners uh, because it's so good. And I want it all to be clear. I'm going to have the team splice up this probably into four parts that are maybe 10 to 15 minute segments, which frankly is a better way to listen anyway, because you can really focus in. Because I don't want you to miss anything that was said. Uh, and we'll have snippets out for you because I've actually been able to talk to Dr. Fairfax for really an hour long conversation, but we're going to break it up and I will give her the last word, but I want you to go and get her new book, The African Experience in Colonial Virginia, Essays on the 1619 Arrival and the Legacy of Slavery. Again, that's by Dr. Kalita Nichols Fairfax. 
uh, who we are talking to today as we kick off Black History Month. And uh, Dr. Fairfax, I will give you the final word. Tell us why uh, you think it is important in the year 2021 to read a book about 1619 arrival and the legacy of slavery. I think it's important that as we see a change in uh, uh, America, we should also understand why that change is required and why it's necessary. And I believe that the authors that contributed to my book provides us with uh, with their writings and with uh, their research uh, that educates us to really think very differently about Virginia. And if we think differently about Virginia, we can definitely think differently about Yeah, I think that's a great America. close, folks. I've said it many times as a Virginian myself, and, and Dr. Fairfax is a Virginian that dates back, you know, at least nine generations here. And uh, Virginia is where America begins. It is the very cradle. It is the beginning of America. 1607, our House of Burgess here. Uh, you know, you go back to uh, the beginning of Jamestown, America. That's where it all starts. And... How Virginia goes, so goes the rest of America, I think is the point that we're both making. And as I wrap this and thank Dr. Fairfax for her time again, we're going to break this into as many segments as we need to, because I want you to hear every word she said. And we had a few technology hiccups, which happens on these type of podcasts when we cannot be in person because of COVID like we normally do. But again, Dr. Fairfax, thank you so much. Again, you can follow, how can can people follow you on Twitter, Facebook, on your public page? Yes, if people will please like my public page, Dr. Kalita Nichols Fairfax, and please follow me on Twitter. I love to have conversations at CLN. Okay, one more time, Fairfax. your Twitter handle, I'm sorry. 